Okay, psalm number eight to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And uh, I will acknowledge that sometimes I say or think something that probably isn't proper. And when I do, I go to bed and I think that the exact words of that psalm, Lord, why would you look on me? What is man that you're mindful of him? We're so fallen in our nature, in our being, in, our, in his presence, and yet he still has affection for us. And he's still willing to give us his word. He's still willing to even send his own son to die. How can it be? When I look at my own sin and I think the things I thought today or the things I said to somebody or the attitude I had, how can it be? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Exodus 5, verses 1 through 9 is our sermon today. It's entitled, Thus Says the Lord God of Israel. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. Religion. The world is full of religion. It's full of types of religion. And it's full of people who follow religion. The source of a religion and the premise of each religion can tell us if that religion is true or not. Understanding and comprehending the world around us, the morals that we possess, and the nature of the scientific disciplines can all point us to the truth or the false nature of a religion as well. If we consider, for example, the source of Scientology, we can know that the religion is false. A man made it up out of his own head with the explicit intent of making money, as he himself said before he started the religion. If we consider the premise of Hinduism, we can know that it's false. Hinduism is polytheistic. It teaches that there are many gods. But through mere logical thinking, we can know that this is not possible. The same is true with Islam. It teaches that God is a monad, a single entity. 
However, if this were true, there would be no creation because he would never go beyond himself. He could never go beyond himself. Love would be impossible for a monad God. And we can know all of these things and so much more simply by thinking about them. But thinking is hard work and it is not popular, even among great thinkers. Sometimes great thinkers think greatly about what they want to think about, not what needs to be considered. When this happens, the great thinking was a waste of thinking because it greatly missed what needed to be thought. Atheists usually follow this avenue of contemplation. When we have presuppositions about the world around us or about the nature of God, we will inevitably use them as a mark that we should work towards even if that mark is wrong. However, if we get it right, if we have the right information, then we can properly direct our thoughts towards the truth concerning the nature of God. When we do this, we can then exercise faith in that God and what he has presented to his creatures. If you want to know more along those lines, stay tuned because Paul is going to be defending them in the weeks ahead. And you can also go back and watch my Genesis 1 verse 1 sermon. But be certain of this. There is one God who is the God presented in the Bible. There are particular and special ways in which he has revealed himself to us. And those ways are recorded in the pages of Scripture. If this is so, then it means that the Bible is God's word. All right? It is complete. It is missing nothing. Nothing superfluous is added into it. Every word and every verse is given for us to accept, to believe, and to obey in the context in which it is presented. To call into question the word of the Lord when it is proven true is to call into question the integrity of God who gave that word. Today, we will see a person begin down that path. He will call into question the word of the Lord. Now, at this point, it may be acceptable because he doesn't know the Lord and there's really no reason to accept something without proof, okay? The problem with this numbskull is that even after he has been given full and sure evidences of the true nature of the God of Israel, he will continue to fight against him to his own detriment and to his own destruction. Now, that's a pretty horrifying thought, but he's not alone. People do it all the time. Our text verse today comes from Proverbs 15. It's the 26th verse. It says, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. The words of Jehovah are pure and pleasant because they are the words of the Creator. If we pit our thoughts against His Word, then we're actually making ourselves an abomination to Him. We're putting our puny little fist into His face and saying, I can do it better. Imagine the arrogance. And yet, are there any of us here in that position today? What part of the Bible do you dismiss? The writings of Paul tell us about the structure and the nature of the church and the roles assigned to men and women. What about the issue of divorce? Are we willing to ignore God and pursue that avenue simply because we're unhappy? What about abortion or homosexuality? What precept do we dismiss from his word because it doesn't fit with our personal mores? Do we know better than he knows? I think not. Today, Pharaoh will begin his walk down a path of no return because today he will begin to ignore the word of the Lord. His disobedience is given as a lesson to us concerning how we should act. Okay, so let's pay attention to what happens so that we can avoid the pitfalls of destruction. 
It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Three thoughts for you. The first is, let my people go. This is verses one and two. Verse one begins with these words. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh. We begin chapter five with words of obedience to the command of the Lord. Together with Moses and Aaron, they traveled to Egypt, met with the elders of the people, and convinced them that the Lord had visited them. In this is the implicit understanding that they had been appointed over the people to represent them before Pharaoh. They have now come to that point, and so together, Moses and Aaron present themselves to Pharaoh in order to make their petition to him. According to Psalm 78, this royal court of Pharaoh is in an area which is known as Zoan, which is now translated or known as Tanis. Verse 1 continues, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, This is the very first time, the very first time that this term is used in the Bible, the Lord God of Israel. It's going to make me cry here in a second just thinking of that. In all, it's only going to be used two more times in the books of Moses. It literally reads, Yehovah Elohe Yisrael. The name Yehovah is a personal pronoun. It is his name. And so it more appropriately reads, thus says Yehovah, comma, God of Israel. Pharaoh would have understood it to be his proper name, just as his own gods had proper names, like Ra or Amon. All right. In Genesis 33, he was called the God of Israel meaning Israel the person. In Exodus 3, he identified himself as the Lord God of your fathers, which he then explained as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now he is identified with the people of Israel. His name is on them, and they are his people. This name has been given by God's divine direction as a means of placing honor upon the mistreated Hebrews under Pharaoh's rule. Despite their humiliation, the Lord has exalted them through his name. It is a pattern which has continued on for 3,500 years now. The people of Israel bear his name, even though he's re- they have rejected him. And even though they have been humiliated and crushed by the people of the world, they bear his name, and thus they bear his attentive eye and his caring affection. Verse 1 continues, Let my people go. Jehovah's words are given. Let my people go. They are his people, not Pharaoh's people. All independent nations were identified with their own God or gods. This is a continuous theme which runs throughout all of the Old Testament. The people of Israel have now been identified with Jehovah, and they are his people. Verse 1 continues, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. When a people is identified with a particular god or gods, it was understood that they would present sacrifices and offerings to them. This is still the case in the world of false gods today. Buddhists offer all kinds of stuff to Buddha. They offer incense and bowls of rice and money and so on. Marian worshippers pray to Mary. They offer her incense and loyalty. They bow down in front of statues of her. Muslims offer prayer five times a day. They offer a month of fasting each year, and they offer their children as tools of destruction by tying bombs to them and sending them off to kill their enemies in the name of their wicked God. The list of false gods, unholy sacrifices, and inappropriate worship is long, but it is a continued pattern which has existed since the fall of man. 
In such worship, there is also the celebration of festivals. For the Hebrews, in the presence of the true God, they are known as Chagag, which we translate in this verse as feast. The word Chagag is based on a word which indicates to move in a circle or specifically to march in a sacred procession. From there, you have the implication of being giddy or to celebrate or to dance or to feast. It is to be a time of worship, celebration, and sacrifice. It is based on the same root as the name of the prophet Haggai, and it is also connected to the Arabic word for Hajj, which is what the Muslims perform when they make their trek to Mecca each year to worship their false god. If you look at photos of the Hajj from above, you will see them going in a circle as they move towards the idol of their false god, which is a black stone called Al-Hajar Al-Aswad, or the black stone. This is the general idea of Hagag, or feast. It's moving in a circle in a sacred procession, thus celebrating, dancing, and feasting. Because this was such a commonly understood form of service to a god, Pharaoh knew exactly what was intended. Moses and Aaron said that they desired to hold such a feast to the Lord, and it is the Lord who has directed them to do so. In this feast, they have requested that it be held in the wilderness. The reason for this isn't plainly evident here, but it will be explained in Exodus chapter 8, and so I'll read that to you now. Here's what it says. It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. Pharaoh, although not having all the information yet, still knew that the God of Israel would have his own expectations for worship. And if he desired it to be in the wilderness, that should be enough of an explanation all by itself. And because the request is so obvious and reasonable, his coming denial shows that he had no fear at all of the God of Israel. In a previous sermon, we looked at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and whether it was a self-hardening or one which came externally from the Lord. In this verse, we begin to see the evidence of the conclusion that we made. It was certainly initiated by the Lord, but Pharaoh had a choice to obey the Lord or to not obey the Lord. Instead of starting with a hard lesson and a terrifying proof that he was capable of destroying Pharaoh, the Lord began with an uncomplicated appeal that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Because of the simplicity of the request, Pharaoh easily fooled himself into believing that he could stand up to Jehovah. And so the hardening was passively begun by Jehovah, but it is an active decision of Pharaoh because he will actively disregard a mild demand of Jehovah. His heart will harden just a little bit. In the stubborn way of man, this hardening will continue even until Egypt is all but destroyed. Too often we as humans would rather face destruction than admit that we were wrong at the beginning. A classic example of this is found in cults all the time. I'll give you an example so that you know. The Book of Mormon has been proven false in several ways. It's been proven false through DNA. There's claims made in there that they now, are, they now know are false. It's been proven false through archaeology and several other ways as well. Claims in the Book of Mormon have been shown inaccurate, but adherents would rather go down with the ship rather than admit that they were wrong about where they had placed their faith. The same is true with adherence of any cult or any religion which denies the obvious truth which is presented to them. Even in secular life, people will deny the obvious if they first accepted a lie. 
Evolution, as we said earlier in the Prophecy Update, has no basis in fact at all. It has not one bone of evidence, and yet it is adhered to as if it were absolute truth. In fact, if you deny it, like this poor guy that's running for the president right now, the news, the media, they're all over him, saying that he won't even make a stand on evolution, when it has nothing to do with he's, whether he's qualified as president or not. But they're using it against him, saying that almost like he's a terrorist because he won't deny either evolution or creation. It's something personal to him. Global warming is the same. It's been proven not only false, but even falsely presented. It's an outright lie. And yet people will hide from the obvious truth and they will still hold to this nonsense. The human condition is one that allows pride to take over and to replace the truth with any lie if it simply means that we can save face in the process. What a sad condition that we would rather proudly walk into hell than crawl with humility to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? There are a few understandable reasons for Pharaoh to ask this question in a seemingly arrogant manner. So I'm going to defend Pharaoh for a minute. First, Pharaoh has obviously never heard of Jehovah. And even the Israelites probably didn't remember the name until it was reintroduced to them after Moses met him at the burning bush as his proper name. If Pharaoh had never heard the name, then he could honestly believe that it was just a made-up name, just like the made-up names of all of the other gods of all of the other nations that surrounded him. Secondly, if the Hebrews had been subjected to brutal treatment for many, many years, even before he had ascended the throne, then he would feel confident that Jehovah was an ineffective deity. No problem there. And thirdly, because the Lord had allowed the suffering to go on for so long, he may have incorrectly assumed that Jehovah didn't really care about the people at all. What kind of a God was Jehovah that he allowed the people to live in toil and in bondage? And that's the exact same thing we see in the world today. The enemies of Israel have looked at them in their exile and their suffering, and they've thought, how can the God of the Hebrews be a true God? How is it possible? If his name is on them, then he must not really be a great God after all. But the Bible says this in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Lord's plans include suffering. It includes trials and hardships and losses. They also include eons of these things, countless generations of them, because his plans are greater than any single point in human history. They're also greater than providing ease for a brief moment, as the prosperity gospel tries to tell us. Instead, his plan encompasses all of time and all circumstances within time. Pharaoh has failed to see that, and from right here at the beginning, it will prove to be his inevitable downfall. When we as humans try to insert all of God's righteousness and all of his wisdom and all of his love and care and all of his knowledge into our own brief existence, we form an idol, which is anything but God. What we need to do when we are faced with tough times is to exclaim what Eli, the high priest of Israel, proclaimed when he was informed of really bad news to come concerning his own household. He was told something bad would happen because of his inattentiveness, and at that time he said this, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. If you go through the Bible, almost every one of the great names of faith recorded there went through suffering. Some of them went through immense suffering. 
But in the end, they are considered faithful because of how they responded to that suffering. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Anything less is tantamount to calling into question the Lord's overarching goodness. Pharaoh's lack of knowledge concerning Jehovah now will be used in the coming story to demonstrate the absolute supremacy of the true God of Israel as he destroys the false gods of Egypt. One by one, from this first meeting until the waters of the Red Sea cover over him for the last time, all of it contains intentional design in order to display the surpassing greatness of Jehovah. Verse 2 continues, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Jewish tradition of today is that the name Jehovah is ineffable. They say that it was never to be pronounced and it is never to be pronounced. But this verse, among many others in the Bible, shows that that is false. If Pharaoh says, who is Jehovah, then Moses must have used the name Jehovah in order for Pharaoh to ask the question. And so he exclaims, I do not know Jehovah. Although it is astonishing to consider that there was no knowledge of the true God by the leader of the greatest nation on earth, it is no less astonishing than the fact that there is no knowledge of the same true God by our own leader today, the greatest nation on earth, or by colleges, universities, governments, and religions all around the world today. And it is certainly no less astonishing than the fact that there is no true knowledge of this same God in many seminaries and churches which actually bear his name. There are countless souls who claim the title of Christian, and yet they know nothing of the person of Jesus Christ. Like Pharaoh, who refused to acknowledge the true God, nor would he let Israel go worship him, they too refused to acknowledge him as well. They dismiss his written word, they disobey their consciences, and they honor him with their lips while their hearts are far from him. The rebellious spirit of Pharaoh is alive and well in the world today. Who is the Lord that you worship? What is the source of your faith? Is it in the words of a man? Is this your hope? Or is it in the Bible in the words, thus the Lord saith? I mean, really, on what is your faith based? Where, oh, where, I ask, can you learn about the Lord? In someone's crazy agenda, is that where it's placed? Or do you look for Jesus in God's holy word? Take out a line, any line from that precious word, and say, these remarks here don't count. Then you have decided in the place of the Lord, the counsel of God, and you have poisoned the precious fount. Our second thought today is a sacrifice to the Lord, which is verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, so they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. In this answer, Moses and Aaron are granting Pharaoh's view of the matter. In essence, they're saying, okay, so you don't know Jehovah, and you may not even feel that he has authority over you, but he does have authority over us. Thus, the answer to Pharaoh here is given as an appeal to pity. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. We are a group of people who are identified as separate and peculiar from the Egyptians. We have suffered in bondage. We have been your slaves. And now we have been confronted by our God. In our meeting, he has made a demand of us. The words are intended to appeal to the already hardening heart of Pharaoh. They form a petition that will now show the severity of the consequences against them if their request isn't granted. Verse 3 continues, Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. In this statement, it has to be noted that the consequences for denial are not directed towards Pharaoh, but rather towards Israel. 
It is another passive way of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. No threat is directed towards him, and therefore he feels there are no consequences that will affect him. He must be thinking, if Jehovah had a demand and could enforce it, he would make it against me, not against his own people. He must be scared of me. But at the same time, any supposed God is given offerings by his people in an attempt to appease him. If this weren't so, then there would be no need to offer any sacrifices. Pharaoh should have no reason to doubt that the Hebrews believed that they would suffer if they didn't sacrifice to the Lord. But if it didn't affect him, then why should he care? The saying, that's your problem, not mine, holds true in this exchange right here. His concern isn't if the people he has already treated brutally would die by pestilence or sword. That's not his care at all. His concern is that they continue to be used for building of his empire. If many die, guess what? There were still many more to take their place. To him, there is no gain and only loss by responding favorably to this request. Verse 4, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Ten times in this chapter, and I know because I counted them, I like to do that kind of thing, is read things in a, a chapter and count them out. Ten times in this chapter, the term Pharaoh is used. However, only in this verse is the term the king of Egypt given. Time and time again, Pharaoh has been set in contrast to Jehovah or Jehovah's people. But in this verse, he is set in contrast to Moses and Aaron, who are supposedly inciting people against his rule. Thus, he is termed the king of Egypt. In essence, he is charging them with insurrection and rebellion. It is the common charge which is levied against those who, rightly or wrongly, look for a change in the general order of a society, whatever type of society. The prophets of Israel were often accused of this when they spoke the word of the Lord. They did it in order to return the people to the faith and worship of the true God. And more often than not, they were accused of rebellion and sedition. Jeremiah in particular, his life was continuously one which fell into this category. As soon as that guy opened his mouth, he found himself accused, challenged, imprisoned, and threatened with death. And a classic example of this is found in Jeremiah 26, and it's well worth a read. So make that your Bible reading for today. See how Jeremiah suffered. And unfortunately, the same is found to be true more and more within our own society today. When preachers stand up for the truth of God in the contents of his word, they're rallied against, even by their own family members, their own government, and even members of their own church sometimes. But there's good news because sometimes the people in the church are the ones who stand up against the faithless pastors who have departed from the word of the Lord. No matter which direction, inevitably the person of God will be accused of sedition against those who feel threatened by their words, words which exalt God, even at a personal cost. Verse 4 continues, get back to your labor. The words are, get back to your burdens. It is the same word, which was used twice in Exodus so far to describe the unusually heavy labor of the people in bondage and under a heavy load of work. It will be used again in the next verse and only two more times in Exodus and never again in the Bible. In what is certainly directed to Moses and Aaron personally and not to the people generally, he tells them to get to the demeaning work which he has assigned to the people. In essence, you and Aaron need to get out there and work with those people. Stop inciting the people to rebellion. He's directly attacking at them, not the people in general. Verse 5, And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. 
The words of Pharaoh here, look, the people of the land are many, implies that the injury to his kingdom would be immense. If a portion of the people stopped working, others would fill the gap. But if an entire population of many people suddenly stopped working, the effect would be disastrous. This is what he's implying, and yet it is completely contrary to the idea of what the Bible means to rest. In this verse is the very first use of the word Shabbat, or Sabbath, when applied to the people of God. The only other time that this word has been used was when God himself rested from his creative efforts and when it said that the cycles of the seasons wouldn't cease as long as the earth remained. Now it is being applied to the people of God and it's being applied to them in a negative way, as if they were to have no such rest. But it is this very rest, and I am certain of this, which will be given to them as a sign of being the covenant people very shortly in the book of Exodus, which is what has brought them prosperity, abundance, and culture. The very thing that Pharaoh accuses Moses and Aaron as causing harm to his kingdom is the thing that if given to them would cause his kingdom to prosper beyond his wildest imaginations. But the stubbornness of the human heart cannot see beyond its own pride. Who will proclaim the word to the people? Who will be faithful to the call? Is there any faithful soul remaining under the church steeple? Over the whole land there has been cast a deadly pall. God desires from his flock worship and sacrifice. He desires that they honor him with a pure heart. Praise from the lips to him is deemed pleasant and nice. Let us vow to turn to him in a fresh start. Be bold and make the solemn proclamation and be sure to give God what is his just due. And even more, let us worship with jubilation because of this attentive care for me and you. Our third thought today is an unreasonable command, which is verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, so the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, in looking at the Exodus account, we find that after Pharaoh, there are actually three levels of superintendence over the people as they worked. The first were mentioned in chapter 1. They were known as Sarin Nassim, or the chief of tributes. The next are mentioned here and are known as Nogashim, or taskmasters. The word means to drive like an animal or a workman, maybe a debtor or even an army. It's really pushing somebody. The implication then is to tax, to harass, and to tyrannize someone. The people were constantly afflicted and never given rest from it. These, like the other ones, would be the ones who extracted service or money from the people for the benefit of Pharaoh and for the economy. And there's also another group known as Shoturim, or officers, which are explained in the coming verses as actually being Hebrews. They're not Egyptians. These Hebrews would be the scribes that attended to the counting of the production of the work, the number of hours that people worked and all of that kind of stuff. It is to these last two groups of people that Pharaoh makes his demand concerning the common people who labor under them. Verse 7, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. All along the Nile, there was planting and there was harvesting going on. When the crops were harvested, what would make sense is that the stalks from the harvest would be bundled up and they'd be floated down the river to wherever bricks were made. In doing this, there wouldn't be any waste, and there would also be increase in efficiency in the construction projects in the kingdom. Once the straw was received, they chop it up into smaller little pieces and use it as a binding material for the brick. This is the same idea as using rebar in concrete to keep it from cracking. Without the straw, the bricks would not hold together well, but instead they would rather crumble, okay? 
The thing about others gathering the straw made for efficiency in the brick-making process, and it also meant that the Hebrews didn't have to do it. Pharaoh's thought on this is if they had to go out and get their own straw, they wouldn't have time to worry about other things. Instead, their time would be consumed with work and not the thoughts of God and rest and all of that stuff. And so his order is given. Verse 7 continuing, let them go and gather straw for themselves. The problem with this command is that it would literally consume all of the people's time. Because they weren't at the fields, they would have no way of getting the straw of the harvests. This wouldn't just increase their work time, but it would probably double it. And even then, they would find it hard to meet their needs. In a dry and arid land, apart from living directly on the Nile River, there would be very little available straw. And the areas that had straw would be fields of harvest that were managed by other people. It would be a giant dilemma for the Hebrews. Verse 8, And you shall lay on them the quote of bricks which they made before, you shall not reduce it. This would have been the most crushing news of all to the people. To make brick was tiresome work, certainly. To be told that they also had to provide straw for the brick would make life most wretched, only adding to the misery. But to tell them that they had to do both and still maintain the same number of bricks as before would be no less than actual torture itself. Straw could not be gathered in, at night in any meaningful way. And so the straw would have to be collected during the day. And the brick making would have to continue on until all hours of the night. There would be no time for rest, no time for family, and no time Certainly, no time for worrying about taking time off to sacrifice to the God who had suddenly appeared in their lives in hopes of making them better. Instead of things getting better, they had only taken a much, much more troublesome direction. Verse 8 continues, For they are idle, for therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Pharaoh equates the people's desire to worship their God with being indolent. But once again, when dealing with the worship of the true God, the opposite is true. Throughout Scripture and in both Testaments of the Bible, both implicitly and explicitly, the people of God who are obedient to God are always called on to be the model citizens and the most productive and faithful of workers. In the book of Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs, Solomon writes extensively about the importance of laboring and not being idle. The premier example of a virtuous woman in the Bible is noted as being in Proverbs 31, and she is the epitome of diligence and labor. Throughout the entire description of her, she is noted for hard work, late hours, and a continuous care of her time in a productive manner. And this woman of virtue was probably a description by Solomon of his ancestor Ruth, who is shown throughout the book which bears her name to be exactly such a woman of virtue. In the New Testament, Paul sets the example for others in that he continuously labored with his own hands. He made tents in order to keep from being a burden on those that he ministered to. And in Ephesians chapter 4, he gives all of us this advice. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. These examples and many others show us that Pharaoh's edict here is a vindictive move against the Hebrews, not an attempt to save his kingdom from some type of monetary loss. The record of Exodus chapter 1 is that the Hebrews were the ones who built the supply cities of Pithom and Ramses. These cities weren't built through indolence or idleness, but rather through the untiring efforts of an already oppressed and yet diligent group of people. Verse 9 finishes with these words, Let more work be laid on the men, 
that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. These concluding words of the day reject the words of the Lord in two ways. First, they reject his request to let the people go by forcing the people to work harder. The exact opposite of what was requested is what occurs. The second way in which they reject the words of the Lord is that they claim they are a lie. Yes, Moses and Aaron presented the words to Pharaoh, but they presented the words of the Lord as intended. He is directly challenging the Lord because Moses and Aaron have been commissioned by him for the work in which they're engaged. The phrase Pharaoh uses for false words here is bedivre shaker. Amazingly, this is the very first time that the word shaker or false is used in the entire Bible. And guess what? It's being ascribed to the one in whom there is no deceit at all. The absolute irony of this is beyond astonishing. The next time that this word shaker will be used is going to be in Exodus chapter 20, when the Lord gives the Ten Commandments. There in the ninth of them, he'll say this, you shall not bear false, that word, witness against your neighbor. Pharaoh described the words of Moses and Aaron as false words, but these words were given to them by the Lord. Many of us have made that same error in the past, but eventually we realized that the words of the Lord are in fact true. We called out to him and he saved us, and yet from time to time we still question the truth of his words. We dismiss those little parts of the Bible because we don't like what they have to say to us. It shows that a bit of the spirit of Pharaoh still resides in us from time to time, this rebellious streak that needs to be quieted. Let's strive with all of our ability to quiet that lie, hold fast to the truth, and accept this precious, superior word at face value. If the Creator demands that we only testify to the truth, it is because He is truth. He is incapable of any type of unrighteousness or false witness. And our false witness will only put up a wall between us and him. And just one transgression is all that's needed to eternally separate us from him. Just one. The Lord is infinitely perfect and our one sin infinitely separates us from that perfection. The connection is lost and we cannot mend it because we are heading in the wrong direction in time. The past is unavailable to us except as a sad memory of what could have been. But into this stream of time came the Lord of creation. He did it to mend the rift between us and his heavenly Father. By calling out to him for pardon, we can be reconciled once again. And so as we close today, please give me just a moment to explain this to you. The Bible says that you and I have sin in our lives. It separates us from God. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And it says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in our lives. Two types of death described in the Bible. The first is spiritual sin or, or death. We are spiritually disconnected from our heavenly father because of the sin that we have in us. And we also die physically at the end of a miserable life because of the sins that we've committed in this life. And Jesus Christ came to take away both of those and to grant us new and eternal life, a spiritual reconnection to our father and an eternal life in his presence. And it all comes by faith. But... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul says that all we need to do is call out to Jesus for salvation. Just all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God, I know that I have sinned in my life. I know that I can't save myself. I can't go back and undo what I've done. And I'm trusting that Jesus can because he came from outside of time into the stream of time. And therefore he can 
be that mediator between finite me and infinite you and to restore me to that happy place where we together can fellowship for all of eternity. So if you've never called on Jesus Christ to forgive you, please do it today. Don't wait another day. Now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Do it, be reconciled to him, and praise him for all of your life for the wondrous things that he has done for you. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 119. That's the 89th verse. It says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Despite Pharaoh arguing against it, despite churches arguing against it, despite our president or anybody else arguing against it, his word is settled in heaven. It is written, it is done. Put your faith in the word of God, which tells us of Jesus, who shows us God the Father. Okay? Next week, Exodus 5, it's verses 10 through 23. It's entitled, Gathering Stubble to Make Brick. Now, that's a lot of verses to do in one sermon. That'll be our 15th Exodus sermon, and I'll have some pictures of what is being said there. But I'm not going to explain it all at the end of the sermon. It's going to be throughout the sermon, so you'll have to pay attention and not fall asleep. But I think you'll enjoy it. Wonderful pictures of things that are coming in the future, okay? So uh, I'll tell you this before we have our daily poem and before we take communion and before we participate in the wondrous uh, provision provided by the bridges, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through them on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things both for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is called, Thus Says the Lord God of Israel. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in, and there they told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. This is the Lord's request, which to you we address. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. This is my spoken choice. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert. For this we are desire us and sacrifice to the Lord our God according to his word, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. No more trouble shall you make. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now and you make them rest from their labor. I will fix this disobedience somehow. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before this command I am relaying. Let them go and gather straw for themselves and you shall on them lay the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it in any way for they are idle. Therefore they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. But my answer to them is no. Let them work. More, let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. This is my decree. I do submit. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This we see, but it was done in a passive way. Pharaoh instead hardened his own heart actively. He rejected the word of God on that day. Who is responsible then in the matter of Pharaoh's heart? Can someone say that he was in any way free of guilt? Not at all. For in this he did his own part. He made his own design like the weavings of a quilt. And so we too make the choice about our destiny. Jesus gave his life if we so choose the heavenly pardon. Or we can walk another path, one which ends in misery, by rejecting the cross, God's heavenly beacon. Don't be found in such a sad, sad state. 
Instead, call out to Jesus, eternal life to receive, and then together with the redeemed, patiently wait on his coming again for all who do believe. Sure and sound is our heavenly hope. Faithful and true are the promises of the Lord. And so in this life of trials, we can cope because of the wondrous wonders ahead guaranteed in his word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, just want to praise you today for the word you've given us because it is truth. It is truth. And if we just apply it to our lives, we will avoid all kinds of pitfalls. We'll avoid all kinds of troubles. And we will also be saved because it is what leads us to Jesus. And Jesus is fully sufficient to do just that, to save us. Thank you for bringing Craig and Darlene to us today. It's so wonderful to see them. Thank you for each person who is here. And uh, we pray for those who aren't here, that they're safely traveling or uh, uh, having a good time where they're at. We thank you for every good blessing you've given us. Your open hand of grace is so abundant. It's so wonderful. Every day we receive good things, and we failed sometimes to thank you for them. But hear our hearts now in thanks for the week behind us and in anticipation of the week ahead. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. Thank you for this superior word and the lessons that it teaches us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. get the words of the uh, Lord's table directly from the Bible, our precious and superior word. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he writes these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it, saying these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice which we're remembering here today. And we look in anticipation of that day when he comes for us again. May it be soon. We look for eternity in your glorious presence. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God who made this possible. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.